to strike up the conversation on Post Show Recaps, a podcast bringing you coverage of the labor disputes happening now in television and film. I'm Dr. Amanda, and I am your host for these conversations. Um, We have a great conversation in store for you. Today, we're going to be talking about working conditions for VFX workers and animators and learn all about that industry. I am joined by a great guest, Bram, who works in the animation industry as a story artist for the past very recently 10 years, just uh, coming up on a 10-year anniversary and has worked with a number of different studios, including Netflix, Nickelodeon, and Warner Brothers Pictures Animation. Thank you for joining me today, Bram. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I am a huge fan of this podcast. I think it's a super important podcast. And I'm, I can't believe I'm, I'm here. I'm, the imposter syndrome is real right now. So thanks for, thanks for having me. Well, I have to say, I, you know, it's so touching to hear that, um, that, that people who work in the industry have been enjoying the podcast and think it's important to talk about these issues. Um, I've been really proud to be a part of Post Show Recaps coverage of the behind the scenes behind the scenes of all of the television and movies that we love so the fact that somebody who's we're actually bringing us that that wonderful content is appreciating this conversation means a lot to me as well well it's awesome because i think you know film and tv like they're they're magic tricks right basically like we watch it and and we're not supposed to know how it all comes together and that's part of the mystique but then there's also you know there's real issues and real concerns that the people who are making these magic tricks have um and so you know those things don't really get talked about so if there's some positives with these strikes is that um people like you and and post recaps are pulling back the curtain a bit and it's, it's a great opportunity to be talking about these and make more people just aware that like yeah real people are behind these like yeah. really fun things that bring us a lot of joy um, well, we're so happy to have you join us today. Um, just a reminder to our listeners, um, please do subscribe and give us your ratings and reviews. Um, subscribing to the podcast is a great way for other people to find us. And you can do so um, with our RSS feed by going to postshowrecaps.com slash strike when you search by URL in your podcast player of choice. That's postshowrecaps.com slash strike. And um, you can also send me any topics that you're interested in hearing more about by going to postshowrecaps.com slash strike FAQ. So um, Bram, you are joining me today. We are talking on Friday, September 22nd, which is already shaping up to be a pretty significant date in the Hollywood strikes. Um, So here on the 22nd, we are on day 144 of the writer's strike, day 71 of the SAG-AFTRA strike. Um, But this is actually the third day, the third consecutive day of negotiations between the WGA and the studios um, who have actually issued a rare joint statement indicating that they are having talks. Um, so I said this to Bram before we got started recording today, um, recording on Friday, this podcast is supposed to come out on Tuesday. It is very likely that there'll be a development and I'll have to come back and give an update. But this is, uh, I think, you know, a, a moment of relative hope in the grand scheme of things. 
certainly more hope than we've had in a very long time. Um, it also speaks a lot that I think all the like major CEOs are present at these negotiations, um, I believe. But like, if that's true, that definitely speaks to like how serious the AMPTP might be to like actually get things moving. And hopefully we're at this stage where, you know, if things don't move pretty soon, things are going to get really affected for the rest of the year uh, right. into early next. So yeah, hopefully, yeah. It's sort of make it or break it time. And, uh, you know, in addition to the representative from the AMPTP, the negotiating body that's been held, that's been headed up by Carol Lamborghini. Um, now Netflix's Ted Sarandos, Disney's Bob Iger, Universal's Donna Langley, and Warner Brothers Discovery's David Zaslov's have all uh, entered the room. And uh, so people are very, very serious about uh, coming to a deal. So um, definitely look forward to any updates that we have about that. You possibly already heard one at the very top of this podcast. But let's turn to our conversation today, because I think even as these strikes resolve, which we hope they will resolve, um, the labor issues in Hollywood are, um, you know, we're, we're sort of just opening up a lot of this conversation. Um, you can see not only in Hollywood, we've also talked about the United Auto Workers who are on strike right now, the Teamsters who successfully struck against UPS earlier um, this summer. Um, there's been a movement in the animation and VFX industry now to also unionize, which is why Bram and I started talking in the first place. So I let's to get started on that conversation. Bram, can you just tell us a little bit about how you got involved in animation? Oh, gosh. Yeah, good question. So um, I have been an animation fan since I was a small child. Um, I, you know, very like typical story of a young kid with asthma who turns to television and watches way too much of it, um, and becomes Indoor like, kid. Yeah. very much so. Um, and yeah, just became a huge animation fan. I used to buy like, you know, like clear acetate things and, and pause, you know, the V the VHS and, and put the acetate on the TV and trace it and try to draw cartoons uh, at a very young age. Um, so it's always been in my in my blood, but um, what I kind of went through as I was growing up was kind of realizing like, I don't know the first thing about this industry. I don't know how people actually do this. I don't know what it means to work in this industry really. And as I learned a little bit more about it, I started going, I don't know if there's a place for me here. I don't know if I am actually wanting to do this. Um, th that takes me to my early twenties where I'm very, very lost as to what I want to do with my uh, career. Uh, and then I saw a film called Wally, Pixar's Wally. Um, and that movie was, I found to be so groundbreaking and such a like, you know, it's still a four quadrant film appealing to, to all age groups and, uh, and that sort, but I found it to be so unique in what it was doing and the filmmaking style. And it started to make me think like, yeah, maybe there's something here for me. Like maybe this is something that I, I actually want to get into. So I seriously delved back into the animation world uh, and eventually went to college, Sheridan College out here in, in Ontario, which is a, you know, a fairly well-known animation school. 
Um, and during my time there, I started to get really into story art and storyboarding. Um, and what that is, is basically the process of turning the script into the visuals that you end up seeing. Mm -hmm. So it's like forming this blueprint of everything that you're gonna end up seeing on screen. Although you never see the story art, you see the results of the story art. And you know, I don't consider myself the best artist anyway. So it felt like a really great fit. I love sequential storytelling, comics and all that sort of stuff and visual storytelling and all that mm -hmm. kind of played into story art and fostered this huge uh, love that I still have even 10 um, years in, which is wild. So, so the story artist, like, and I would love to hear from you, like help, because I'm a real outsider to this world. So I don't understand all of the different roles that are involved, but um, the story artist is really like the first pass at creating the visual story. Is that correct, Bram? Exactly. So what uh, will happen with me is I'll get a script and things are a little different in TV versus film, but essentially it's the same idea that you get the script um, or an outline. And then the idea would be to say, okay, you're turning this story into art and art is what we're doing. So uh, my job would be to draw hundreds or thousands of really quick panels that when an editor takes and puts them into a reel, basically gives you a sense of how the movie or show will end up looking and feeling and cutting and moving. So I'm thinking about, as a story artist, I'm thinking about a lot of things that a live action director will think about, like where does the camera go? Mm -hmm. um, editing, like who's gonna, you know, how long are we on this shot? Um, what do we need to get from point A to B? How are we communicating this story? And why that's so important in animation and why there's hundreds and thousands of drawings um, is because in live action, you know, you can shoot a lot over a day and you have a lot of options that you can later cut away. And one day's work can yield, you know, a couple minutes of screen time. But for an animator, it can take weeks to get, you know, a single shot animated. So those are things that you don't want to cut away and you don't want to waste that time. So what I like to say to people is that like for animation, for live action film, there's that adage and I, I think you may have heard it um, that the people say the film is written three times. And they say it's written in pre-production, like script writing. It's written in production, again, when you have all the actors on a stage and you're filming it with, with cameras. Um, and then it's written again in post-production in editing and sound. Um, and all those times you're shaping the story. In animation that all happens, where I am, that all mm. those things happen in story art. You know, you're you're drawing panels, you're cutting them into reels, you're looking at it, you're throwing those panels away and starting all over again sometimes. Um, all the exploration happens there. And then by the time it leaves the story art and editing pre-production area of the pipeline, you really know what you're doing basically, for the most part. You get the sense of like, okay, now we're executing these things and we're elevating mm. these and we're turning them into what will eventually be seen on screen. Um, but my role is really that exploration of really visualizing the story before it gets into, you know, all the talent mm -hmm. that's required to, to animate and, and bring it to life. Yeah, um, so thank you for that wonderful description. Um, I, I wanna get into like what 
the some of that labor entails? I mean, it sounds like a tremendous amount of work to do. I mean, and I'm sure it varies from project to project. Um, but um, who are some of the other members, uh, like on the team that will bring an animated film to life? So you have the story artists. Um, are there other categories of animators that are involved in a given project? Yes. So there's a whole pipeline. Um, that basically you can imagine uh, just like a big long tunnel or a big long uh, string. I don't know. Maybe this is a bad visualization uh -huh. and, and I'm supposed to be visualizing things. So <laughs> not great, look. Uh, but the, basically just a pipeline of, mm -hmm. of different uh, departments. Uh, so basically, and, and as you start down the pipeline, they, they kind of start to overlap. So it'll start with story art. Um, so it will go to editorial from story art. Um, and then as story art is happening, you've got people designing the characters. You've got people visualizing this with like beautiful paintings of like what is gonna be seen because in animation, we have to build everything. We have to light everything. There's nothing that exists in the real world. So everything has to be imagined from you know, the thing that you see on screen, like the character super prominently to like the little post-it note on the desk beside that character mm. out of focus that all needs to be designed and built in a computer and and brought to life. So in the same area of the pipeline as story art, you have designers mm -hmm. and background designers, character designers, um, people doing all that pre-visualization. Um, and then there are people that once those characters are approved, if this is like a 3D project, they're in the computer modeling those characters, uh, basically creating like digital puppets and rigging them so that they can move. And all these things are happening. So then once the shot is approved on the story side, it will go to the layout department. Um, and the layout department will take like the background and the props and the character and put them all together in a virtual space and then set up the camera, virtual cameras, to say like, okay, the story artist wants the camera over here. And they'll like kind of make, you know, a version of what the story art is saying. Um, and then, you know, little things will get adjusted as you go. But from layout, then it will go to animation. Then the animator will say like, cool, I'm a character animator, I gotta do the character. Mm -hmm. um, if there's an effect, it'll go to an effect animator. That's a whole other department. Um, then, it will need to be, you know, lit. The whole lighting department. It'll need to be um, composited if there's like multiple things happening together. So there's all these departments that are working alongside each other um, in a whole pipeline that goes all the way till the very end when you have like sound mixing and all that other stuff. That's yeah, more, more typical of of movie making that we wow. that we can think of and conceptualize. I mean, it sounds like it's a tremendous amount of labor and expertise that goes into that. I mean, you mentioned that there's all of these departments. I would imagine that mm -hmm. for certain projects, like, um, you know, we'll talk about the Spider-Man across the multiverse, but like for certain projects, I'm sure that all of those teams are very, very numerous um, yeah. because of the just the amount of work and the amount of expertise that's needed for projects that broad um can you give like an estimate about how many people in animation might be on uh on a on a film like you mentioned you know netflix nickelodeon warner brothers like what are some of the sizes of teams that you've been a part of 
definitely depends on the project. Mm. Um, something like uh, a 2D TV show, like when I worked on for Nickelodeon, um, would be maybe 50 to 100 people um, involved across all stages uh, in any given episode. Um, something like Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, we're looking at hundreds if not thousands of people wow. will touch that film at a certain point. Um, and yeah, that's the nature of the beast, right? And an episode of TV from script to airtime typically is about a year for one episode of, of a cartoon, mm -hmm. right? And a movie you're looking at three years, maybe four years uh, is pretty typical from the very beginning to the very end. Um, so yeah, it's it's a lot of hands will touch that project. And it yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that like one person is on that crew from beginning to end. There's turnover, things change. So you might have, you know, multiple people. If the film is taking three years, you might have multiple people in that department come and go mm -hmm. during the duration of that film. So yeah, it's a it it's it's a it's a village it's a say. village it's a it's a it's a lot it's a lot of of human labor and a lot mm -hmm. of uh human creativity and work that goes into that um now we've been talking about um you know we've been talking about sag aftra and we've been talking about the wga and um in their negotiations there have been a number of issues that have you know that they've raised like you know we've talked about residuals on this podcast we've talked about um you know pay keeping pace with the price with the cost of inflation now in the animation industry as far as i understand bram there has not been any collective bargaining at all so all of those things that we've talked about with wga and sag aftra where they're saying oh we want better deals in your industry there haven't even been standard deals right i imagine that you're like it's re you're really it's on a job to job basis what your rate is going to be um all of these other um issues is that correct that's largely correct okay. um there is an animation union uh in california okay. so in los angeles and the la area um there is an animation guild um so any employee or, or you know contract worker um within certain areas of that pipeline that i described um can be a part of the union if they are working for and in like burbank los angeles area um as we talk mm -hmm. you know we'll we'll discuss how relatively few people mm -hmm. of those hundreds or thousands that i described actually are part of that union and actually work in that you know that region so that they can be union members um i've never been a part of a union because i've never worked there um to my knowledge that's with very 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 few exceptions that's the only animation union that like really exists um so yeah, it, there's there's a long way to go in terms of uh -huh. in terms of union unionization and yeah and that stuff for for animation, but it does exist. And I will shout out uh, a fantastic book to read um, if we're interested for people that really want to delve into like how that happened. Uh, there's a book that was published I think last year called The Disney Revolt, 
Uh Um, And that's a great book that details just how Disney went from, you know, no union to what it took to, uh, to, to get that animation guild that I'm talking about off the ground and Disney's involvement in that. Um, and yes, it's a fascinating read and it includes a strike. So it's very, very topical. Wow. Um, so, so what are like some of the working conditions like for these all, you know, this, this veritable army of animators that it takes to bring one of these projects to life? I like, I mean, I just thinking about all of the, the hand drawing and computer animation and like all that's involved to do this. You, you describe, you know, lighting departments and design and all of this. Um, like, you know, that it seems like it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. So, you know, in terms of, you know, compensation hours, what are some of the things that, um, you would say, or, you know, characterize what that experience is like for workers? Okay, so this really varies. And this varies um, from project to project, from studio to studio, from sub-studio to sub-studio. This really, really goes on and on. Um, You know, those union-covered studios and the union jobs, um, they have a certain standard, uh, as they should. So that is pretty that's pretty easy to kind of like look up and figure out in terms of, you know, maximum hours and overtime and that kind of compensation for the union members. Everywhere else is a little bit of a wild west. Mm. Um, And it's, yeah, it's greatly varied. I've worked at a whole bunch of different studios um, and it's varied from studio to studio. Every studio kind of has its own little mini company culture. where they have different expectations or different needs um, and different conditions. Yeah. Does any of that, like, I mean, I guess I'm wondering, you know, we've talked with um, the actors and writers who have appeared on this show about things that have changed in their industry over time, about the influence of streamers and um, these other players entering the content uh, production space. Um, Have you noticed any of that in your career, that variation from, you know, maybe like Disney, which is obviously, you know, uh, synonymous with animation in many of our minds versus, you know, getting in like Amazon and um, Netflix and these newer players. Um, Have, is there any variation across those types of platforms in your experience? For sure, there's big parallels here. And I think one of the major things um, that's an issue for writers is a very similar issue for anybody working in animation on these shows that all of a sudden used to be 22 episodes per season and are now eight or 10 or 12 for animation. Uh, and what that, how that really affects everybody across the board is you know, our contracts are typically per season of television. So if I'm hired to work on a show, usually it's, you know, hey, we want you for this season of a show. So you can imagine the time that, you know, you're gonna hire a, a story team, for example, to work on one season of TV it could vary wildly if the season of TV is 22 episodes mm-hmm. versus eight or 10. So it means that a lot of us are looking for jobs a lot more frequently. Um, and, you know, people love to, to think and hope that like you get a job at a studio and you stay at that studio for 
you know, 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. but that's definitely not the reality now. Um, everyone across the board is, is typically, you know, with few exceptions contracted for each individual project. So what that will mean is, you know, if I'm going to be a story artist on a 10 episode season, that like maybe I'm going to work on half those episodes um, at most. So let's say it takes four weeks. Let's, you know, making it super easy. Four weeks per board on a TV show. That means in five months or six months, I need to find another job. I need to find another yeah. contract. So that turnover happens. And that's the same, you know, for everybody working. So it means that, you know, there's just more frequency and more um, uncertainty as, mm -hmm. as the industry moves along. And right now, you know, uh, the animation industry is, since my time working, uh, feeling really volatile right now and very uh, dry that like, I know a lot of people looking for work right now and work's not really happening as a result of what's going on in the world. So it leaves us more mm -hmm. exposed when these projects are shorter um, to, to problems like this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, the sporadic nature of the work in entertainment, it just seems like it's something that's always been a feature of those careers. And, um, you know, in some ways has maybe gotten worse, like have animators, um, do they get share of residual payments or have some sort of revenue um, sharing compensation like the writers and actors do? No, I wish. <laughs> um, you know, th there's stories of the heyday of Disney in which like the people who animated Beauty and the Beast and Lion King got like massive bonuses and cars and all this wild stuff, but that has not happened since the 90s. Um, for for us it's very contract based it's very by the book you you're hired to do to produce something for the studio the studio owns it and that's it you get paid your your rate and then you know whether it tanks or whether it makes a gazillion dollars our rates stay the same um i mean does it seems like it seems like if you know writers and actors deserve a share in the success of their products which i wholeheartedly believe that they do that animators deserve a large share of the success of their uh of their animated products i mean especially with just how sophisticated um and incredible the the state of the art has has been um and just how important that is for those films um i mean is that is this something that is a um is this something that's been in the agenda or something that's been on the wish list of people in your industry bram boy uh i mean the whistle the wish list sure <laughs> Yeah. Definitely. I'm, I can't imagine that people wouldn't, you know, enjoy mm -hmm. thinking about residuals and whatnot. Uh, it's just never been a, a, an actual reality um, since the very beginning. Um, so I don't think it's something that's like realistically on yeah. the table. Uh, and, you know, you, in fairness, there is a lot of question about like, so many people will touch one shot of mm -hmm. animation. So you know, and that's all a part of bringing that to life. So there is that question of like, okay, should the voice actor get residuals? Should yeah. the character animator get residuals? Okay, but if the character animator gets residuals, what about, you know, the 
the background designer, like the backgrounds mm -hmm. are a part of how amazing a show can look. So do they get residuals too? And I think that kind of starts to muddy the waters a little bit as to as to how that happens. Whereas live action, it's a little bit more cut and dry when you say like someone is an actor on the show and this show cannot exist without this actor, mm -hmm. you know? Um, mm -hmm. Certainly they, you know, the, the friends, for example, and friends, like if any one of those are not on screen or not on a season, right. the whole show is going to suffer. Um, so it's a little easier to say like, yes, Matthew Lawrence, like get, not Matthew, not <laughs> Matthew yeah, get, yeah, Matthew yeah. there's so many Matthews. I don't know, so many, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it, it's a little bit, I, I think that that yeah. is just easier and it's certainly fair for them to get residuals and it's important for them to get residuals. But I think that's just harder to, to kind of figure out mm -hmm. in the animation realm. Um. One of the things that's important, a feature of being a member of the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA is the qualification for health insurance. Um, is that something that animators have an analog to that they can get um, those types of healthcare benefits covered um, as workers in your industry? Yes. In the animation union, yes, there mm -hmm. are health benefits and there are... Um, all that awesome stuff that, that they should have. Um, everywhere else, not necessarily. Again, that will be a studio to studio basis. Mm. Um, and it depends, like I work a lot these days as just a totally independent contractor. So I have none of those things. Mm -hmm. um, but in the past I have worked at studios where they have like a benefits package. Um, but again, like that's studio to studio, job to job. <laughs> Uh, it's not a guarantee and it's not mm -hmm. a given. So, so Brim, give me an idea of the scope of how much of the animation industry is actually covered by this California union that's in place. Okay, here we go. So <laughs> this is where we're going to get into some nitty gritty stuff. Great. Um, so bear with me. Feel free to ask me questions about this. I'm going to do my best. So, and anybody in the industry by the way who's listening to this and is like this guy is, is getting everything wrong let me know uh but i think <laughs> i'm doing okay um so uh to my knowledge there are very 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 few studios that everyone in that pipeline that i described uh works in california for these studios mm. um you know pixar famously has Everybody who's working on that film works at Pixar. Um, Disney Animation, everyone who works at Disney Animation is, you know, or sorry, everybody involved in that pipeline for the most part is working at Disney Animation. Uh, I believe DreamWorks still basically, for, and I'm talking about only features right now. Um, everyone at DreamWorks works on all parts of the movie. So they'll have much larger staffs, bigger facilities, this kind of stuff. Um, that's not even true of every film of DreamWorks, but it is true of, of kind of their big ones. Every other studio um, is, you know, is in the game of like everywhere else is, everyone else is. They're in the game of how much can we save and how much can we outsource to other studios uh, around the world. So when we think about live action, let's, let's take it there because I think we, more, you know, more listeners will have an understanding of live yeah. action stuff. So for example, you know, Breaking Bad takes place in Albuquerque because 
they're shooting in Albuquerque, right? It was like a, a production cost saving measure, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason is it's cheaper to shoot in Albuquerque because the state of, of New Mexico will give tax credits to the studio. So it's cheaper to fly all your actors and crew to New Mexico and film there than it would be to, you know, get sound stages and, and do that in California. So the animation world has a very similar thing where it's cheaper to subcontract out smaller vendor service mm -hmm. studios to, you know, to deliver some of that work. So it's very, very, very common that the studios will do a lot of their pre-production work in California in-house. Um, and then once it's ready for animation or ready for layout or ready for a certain part in that pipeline, they send it somewhere else to do. Mm -hmm. um, and that is very common. VFX is basically gotta be 90 something percent outsourced. Uh -huh. um, and if they're not, you know, if they're outsourcing not to California, they're typically getting tax credits for this. So my 10 years of working in the animation industry have all been, I've been located in Canada that whole time. Mm -hmm. um, and the only reason I have a job is because I'd be working for these uh, tax credited <laughs> vendor studios that are supplying my work to the studios so that the studios can save money essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I think people are familiar with it in terms of animation, like just, you know, TV shows, people think of, you know, Hey, you send that, you send some of the animation to Korea, you know, and then it gets mm -hmm. animated and it comes back, but that's really true of not just animation, but typically, you know, the studios, uh, that are in California under these, under the labor uh, laws under the union mm -hmm. um they'll do you know as much as required to like really get this kind of this on on its feet and moving in terms of story art will typically be done there um editorial will be done there and then the vast majority of the middle will be sent somewhere else and then it'll come back and then it can refine from there so when we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people or not hundreds of thousands hundreds or thousands of people working mm -hmm. on something like spider-verse i would probably say under 50 of them are in the union in california right and so you mentioned that there's the um economic uh, advantage of tax credits but i also imagine that they're paying these outsourced workers much less than they would pay the in-house people that they have in California that have union protections. Definitely. Um, and, and that's at that point, it kind of leaves the studio's hands, right? So what will happen is um, let's say you're um, well, gosh, name a studio. Let, let's we'll, we'll pick on Sony for a second. Okay. Nothing yeah. against Sony. <laughs> this is just an example, right? Um, but so Sony will subcontract a studio to work on Spider-Verse. Right, and the and they will uh, basically come up with a number, whatever works for them in terms of these two studios. They'll negotiate and they'll say, you know, okay, you we're going to give you ten million dollars to make this. Right, I'm throwing out numbers. This is not accurate. 
don't quote me on any of this. Mm-hmm. I'm just giving like hopefully easy enough to wrap our brains around examples. Um, so Sony will say like, hey, studio in Canada, we're going to give you $10 million to animate 300 shots, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it will be up to that studio in Canada to allocate that $10 million. And they'll have you know a certain time that is estimated we want these shots, these 300 shots within a year, let's say. So then the Canadian studio goes, great, we have $10 million, we have a year, who do we need? How are we gonna pay them? All that stuff would be up to the Canadian studio. So they will be in charge of crewing up a mm-hmm. whole you know, village of people to get that done. And then it will be up to them. So it, that kind of leaves Sony's hands in terms of how these workers are being paid. And it becomes now, the responsibility of the studio that they have subcontracted to determine who gets paid what and how and how many people are needed and how they allocate that money. Um, and, you know, as we get further into the weeds talking about VFX, like there's a lot of crossover here Yeah. Um, in terms of like, yeah, how do, how do people get paid? How do people get treated? Um, that, that all varies wildly based on how the studio tends to, you know, tries to allocate that money uh hopefully fairly you know mm-hmm. um because spider-verse has come up now a few times mm-hmm. there were a lot of reports um in over the summer about the work conditions for the animators who were involved in bringing that spectacular project to life i've seen you know reports that people were pushed to work more than 11 hours a day, seven days a week at certain points that they were making last minute changes and responses to requests. Um, And, you know, that was one of the things that I think was starting to bring the conditions that uh, animators are working under to light. Um, Is this, is how, how, common or uncommon are these like I well first of all I guess my question is are you know just to state the obvious if you're not in a union you don't really have any protections over those types of demands right like if the studio is saying you know just we need you to keep on working until we have this the way that we want this there's nothing there to protect you from being asked to work those unreasonable schedules I think that's the case. Uh-huh. Um, it will depend on the individual contract that you know the worker has and how the studio has kind of worded that contract and figured things out. Um, before we get too far down this road, which I'm like very happy to go down, uh-huh. I want to caveat two things. Number one, I love the Spider-Verse movies so much. They, I'm like a gigantic fan. Anything I say is not disparaging to those films. I absolutely love them. Uh, I can't wait for the third one. I'm a massive fan of those movies. Um, And number two, I've never worked in animation, like as an animator. Um, So I will do my best to speak on behalf of like how the animation contracts will work and like what kind of conditions I have kind of seen peripherally and can imagine Mm -hmm. with this. But I haven't worked on the project. I haven't worked as an animator. So there's going to be a lot of like... uh, Educated guesswork. Yeah, on my part yeah. With this. Um, Thank you. So, I appreciate. Yeah, no, but I appreciate the perspective of and, and those caveats. But I'm sure. But we're. I'm learning a lot from you, Bram. Okay. I, I hope I'm. I'm doing my best for you. Um. So 
as far as my educated guesswork with this, I would expect that a studio would give an animator uh, on a project like this. And by the way, Spider-Verse has been called out with this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. but it number one, didn't surprise me to hear. And number two, I'm sure this kind of stuff happens on a lot of projects. Um, so I would expect that an animator would be given a contract saying like, hey, this is what we expect. Um, and somewhere within that contract would be like, we have the right to change this, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and then people who want jobs, like this, this would be standard in contracts. You know, they would say like, hey, here's uh, the conditions under which you can ask for overtime. You know, this is the kind of stuff that we'd uh, expect. This can change at any time, kind of take it or leave it, you know, mm. in a lot of ways. And, and people take it because that's in every contract. Like I've gotten yeah. contracts like that. Um, so that's just kind of part of the thing. And there is this understanding that, yeah, when you get into crunch time, let's say on a project like this, when we get into like, it's a few months before the release date and changes are still happening or shots need to, mm -hmm. to get done. There's that general understanding of like, we're all in this together. We got to make this happen. Right. And over time is just expected. And yeah. long hours are just expected. Um, whether that's right or wrong, you know, mm. uh, that is kind of the expectation across the board in the yeah. industry. Yeah. I mean, this is why I just want to pause here to just uh, like reflect on that for a moment because, um, you know, I'm, you know, I, I am, I'm somebody who also like works in what, you know, some people could describe as like a passion field where you're like just happy to get opportunities and you're grateful to be a part of the team and you're willing to put in extra effort if that's what needed because you're invested in the product. And those are, I think that those are good things, but the reason that unions are important is because all of those qualities are also like lay the groundwork for people to end up getting exploited. Right. And like the reason that unions have to step in is because, you know, nobody is, you know, you're, you know, with, with very, very rare exceptions are people, you know, making a big fuss about, you know, a little bit more time here and there, or, you know, like, but I think it's just the slippery slope that happens where over time, people are getting exploited and are not getting, you know, a fair deal. And people are working 11 hour days, seven days a week, pushing themselves to the limit. Um, we need unions to kind of protect us along those lines, because most of these workers, all of these workers are are invested in making a great product. I mean, I, you mentioned how much you love the Spider-Verse movies. Um, I mean, I'm not a big comic book person. I'm not a big animated film person, but I've seen both of these movies with my kids and left crying and thinking about them and wanting to see them again and again. So I was really devastated to hear that uh, the working conditions were so difficult for so many people. But I mean, it just speaks, I think, to the fact that union protections are important because people who care so passionately about things are, you know, unfortunately going to get exploited by people who have a lot of power and only care about the bottom line. It's true. And I also just want to caveat that, like, I'm throwing out a lot of caveats today, I guess. But I do want to say, too, that, like, it's really easy for us to think about like, okay, the mustache twirling, you know, boss that's, you know, gouging their employees and the employees are just have to go along with it. There's, you know, it's really easy to kind of characterize that kind of thing. But the reality is like, that's kind of the way the whole system has been set up 
um, not not for mustache twirlers, but it's it's set up in that these studios kind of have no choice but to really fixate on okay, what's our bottom line? How much can we get for as little as we can? Because that is kind of unfortunately the name of the game, right? Like I've listened to all your podcasts. <laughs> But I'm gonna forget who said what on certain mm-hmm. episodes, so maybe you can help me with it. But there was someone on the show that said, you know, it is kind of the nature of the beast that these studios are gonna want to, you know, make the most money by spending yeah. the least amount of money, right? And that is the way people are rewarded. The the CEOs and the the people way way high up on the chain, that's the goal. The goal is right. to, you know, create the biggest success by spending, you know, the smallest amount of money they possibly can to turn the biggest profit they possibly can. And where is that balance and where is that line? So what ends up happening, right, is that they're incentivized to find studios that they can work with to save money, get tax credits, do these things, work outside of union mm-hmm. laws, labor laws. And then the studios that they subcontract are incentivized to bid low, you know, right. to say like, oh, no, we can do this. Don't worry. We, you, want, you want it for this much money? Yes, we got you because there are so many studios out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done some research because VFX and stuff is kind of my like least knowledge as we get yeah. further down the pipeline. But like, you know, there's, there's so many VFX studios that are constantly being used and they're in a way, you know, there's so much work to go around, but, you know, they're in competition to stay relevant and stay alive and pay their employees. And like, but what ends up happening is the studios are looking for, you know, who can deliver the best quality for the yeah. lowest price. And then as a studio to stay competitive, you want to be that person or that studio, I mean, and then unfortunately that trickles down in in a bad way to like then they're saying okay well how how do we pay our workers fairly but as little as right we can so no. that we can keep our bids low you know it's exactly it's no, it's so a, complex it's sometimes that, like, i mean i don't want you, to vilify anybody no you know? well unions in a way like they even protect the employer who wants to do right by their employees because it creates a rule that all of the players are going to abide by and that way you know when they have these bidding wars there's they're not going to get undercut by somebody else who is skimping on paying labor so there's a way that sometimes um having a rule or a protection like that can actually help a conscientious studio executive, you know, actually follow their conscious and pay people a fair shake if that's what they want to do. Um, So it is important. And like you said, the system is set up so that, you know, the interests of these studios is to protect their bottom line. And when the system is working in a healthy way, then you have these negotiations and labor also has power and both parties can come together and have a deal that is fair and works for everybody. And striking is sometimes an important part of, uh, of arriving at that endpoint. For sure. And in the example of Spider-Verse, right, when I'm talking about these like sub studios, it's really easy to then say like, okay, but it's all Sony, right? Sony Pictures Animation is out of California and they're sending 
everything down the pipeline from after story art and after editorial, they're sending everything down, or sorry, up, I guess, to Vancouver, um, where Sony, oh my gosh, what is it, Sony Imageworks is the studio in Vancouver that handles all of that production work mm -hmm. for them. Sony Imageworks is not actually owned by Sony Pictures Animation. Oh, wow. So Sony Imageworks is technically its own independent studio and Sony Pictures Animation doesn't have to use them. Mm. You know, they, they want to, and they've set up a, a, an arrangement and an agreement to do so, but they don't have to. So that still incentivizes Sony Imageworks to keep the cost low so that Sony Pictures Animation doesn't look elsewhere for this incredible assignment of, you know, being employed for multiple years on mm -hmm. a Spider-Verse movie, you know? So it really does get tricky when there's no union involved. And then even if there was a union involved, okay, is it Sony Pictures, is it Sony Imageworks union? And if that's, mm -hmm. if that's there, then does that incentivize Sony Pictures Animation to say, okay, well, we'll just get a different non-union studio. It's so tricky, you know, yeah. like, and me personally, we're talking about, if we're talking about me individually, I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, unions are great. I'm, I would love to be in a union. I'm down with this. But as I look into it and I go like, okay, well, what is the incentive for mm -hmm. then the studio to, to look at a, a unionized studio versus a non-unionized studio? What, would incentivize them to hire the unionized studio. It's so well, tricky. They, yeah, you know? this is so this is a great this is a great segue into the discussion of what's going on with VFX right mm -hmm. now because Marvel VFX workers unanimously voted to unionize with IATSE. Um, this is a recent development as of a, a week and a half ago. Um, the VFX workers at Disney file for unionization under IATSE. Um, so this is like you like you said Bram that there's like studio on a studio by studio basis we have these VFX workers joining IATSE and getting protection under the basic IATSE agreement but because the industry as a whole is not covered by a single union the way that um you know the way that WGA and SAG-AFTRA have largely, um, you know, created with their strength a uh, industry-wide union in those areas. Um, this could create a landscape where studios are going to be able to pick and choose whether they are going to employ union workers or whether they are going to employ non-union workers. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that's the landscape already. Mm -hmm. Aside from unions, that's the mm -hmm. landscape already, right? So when I'm looking at the the um, the VFX union, which, first of all, major step forward, incredible yeah. thing that this is happening. Um, I think it's, you know, the first domino, hopefully, in a lot of dominoes. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like the tip of the tip of the iceberg when you're talking about VFX, right? So the Marvel, I'm, I'm pulling up my notes. The, okay, great. The, so the combined number of workers between Marvel and Disney that have joined with, a with IATSE or filed to join with IATSE are 70. 70 total. Okay. 52 at Marvel and 18 at Disney. 
And those jobs are the people that are on set usually. So we're talking about mm-hmm. data wranglers, uh, witness camera operators, production managers, production staff, production assistants. So these are the people that are like on the ground getting the VFX kind of started. They're not what we typically think of, of like when we see Ant-Man and we go like, oh, mm. those, the CGI isn't so great in that one, <laughs> right? Um, that those aren't the workers that are becoming unionized here. It's the workers mm-hmm. that are, you know, on the stages with with the crew um, doing their like really important work that mm-hmm. like they absolutely should be fairly compensated for. Yeah. Um, those are who we're talking about with this. So this is an amazing first step, but I'm gonna go ahead and read to you all the studios that worked on Ant-Man, okay? okay? In in visual effects, just in visual effects. These are mm-hmm. all these like subcontracted studios that I'm talking about. And this is me going through the credits and like, and writing this all. Amazing. So, so here we go. These are all the studios just on Ant-Man, okay? Are we ready? Yes. Industrial Light and Magic, Sony Pictures Imageworks, NPC Montreal, NPC Adelaide, Rising Sun Pictures, Spin Effects, Atomic Arts, Folks VFX, Monsters, Aliens, Robots, Zombies, Territory Studio, Barnstorm VFX, Finn Design and Effects, Base Effects, Pixamondo, Luma Pictures, and additional VFX by Stereo D, Virtuous, Yannix, Blue Pencil Concept, Weta, Ochoa Incorporated, Stereo D, Fox VFX Lab Incorporated, Future Deluxe, and Cinecide VFX. How many, so- <laughs> how many was that? Oh gosh, I didn't get no, it. No, you don't you don't have to 40. count it. You don't have to count it. That's incredible. And so those are all uncovered by so I mean, we're seeing these headlines and it's really exciting. And like you said, this is a first step. We've talked about how union popularity is on the rise, but we are still only eight percent unionized as an as an American workforce. I'm not speaking of a Canadian workforce, Baron. But um so I think we're we're in a positive direction in terms of public opinion and in terms of beginning the steps that it will take to have a strong labor market. But it sounds like, I mean, this is still a relatively small step with a lot of work left to do for all of those workers to get covered under the same protections. Yeah. And when you're when you're sitting at a Marvel movie, which I love, I've seen them all, you know, um, when you're sitting at those movies and you're watching the credits and those like giant wall of names are scrolling by you as you wait for the post credit scene, right? Those are all people that are not all, but so many of them are, are part of these studios that I'm listing out that mm-hmm. are by and large not, you know, not under a union, not protected. Um, and these are people that are really working, you know, a lot of overtime, a lot of wild hours. And there's a lot of transients in this industry, you know, to, to make, you know, cool Doctor Strange magic happen, for example, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and so many of us do it and we love it. And it's, and it's, it is, a, it, it is and can be a really viable career choice, but it's not simple and it's not easy, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, all these studios as a, the reason I like pull these out to like kind of illustrate is this idea that like, you know, we think, okay, Marvel, VFX, Marvel film, great. Marvel has a VFX crew and we're done here, you know? But in actuality, Marvel has a small VFX crew and just like animation, they're gonna, you know, contract out all these Mm -hmm. other studios to get the VFX work done. And that's, you know, because we have thousands of shots in these movies, 
that have some level of visual effects in some right. way, right? From like de-aging to like yes. some like, you know, some effects mm-hmm. to Spider-Man's costume, mm-hmm. like all these things, there's an effect, there's some effect, visual effect in almost, if not every shot, almost every shot, you know? And so the reason that all these studios exist is so that it doesn't take like five years to make a Marvel movie. It takes a few months because of the say 2,500 shots, a hundred can go to each studio and that's like a manageable workload. Um, and all that stuff keeps costs down too, right? To a reasonable, these movies are still hundreds of millions of dollars to exactly, make. Exactly, right. You know, so that's where you get tricky too, is like, we all love these movies and we all enjoy them. How much would it possibly cost if everybody, you know, if there were no tax credits and there were no, like all these things, it's it's mind boggling, right? So so it, it just sheds a light on the complexity yeah. of this whole thing, yeah. I think. I'm not trying to, to, again, I'm not trying to be like, this isn't good enough or whatever, right? Like all I'm trying to, to do is really illustrate the magnitude of, mm-hmm. of what it takes to, to mount these productions and, you know, why we're in this the spot yeah. that we're in. It's a web of complexity, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I will, yeah. because Spider-Man <laughs> very much on the brain. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's a lot of great points that you raise there, Bram. Um, I will, in our very, in one of our earliest conversations, when we spoke to Michael Chernis, um, the actor from, um, Severance and from, from his own Spider-Man film, um, and and many others. And also, um, Orange is the New Black. One of the things in it, it, it's the, I first started thinking, um, appreciating this dimension of the issue when we were talking about orange is a new black and just how large that cast is and how expensive it would be to pay all of those actors in that brilliant ensemble cast fairly. And you're right. When you look at the amount and you were describing all of the different departments that um, bring an animated film to life, all of the different VFX workers that bring um, many of these films to life. Um, it's it's a huge human labor cost. I mean, these are highly specialized, time-consuming, lots of man-hour uh, jo- careers here. And it makes all the sense in the world that studios that are looking at, um, you know, looking at balance sheets are going to see how much they can reduce that number, right? And if you're paying a whole team, everything multiplies. If everybody gets a raise, then that's, um, you know, a huge additional cost. If you limit work hours, and that takes much longer to bring something to the box office. Um, You know, we talk about how these films perform in the box office. And, you know, while a lot of these big animated films have done really well, um, you know, box office numbers are not what they used to be, um, you know, several, you know, now decades ago. Um, So there's a lot of questions, I think, about the business model in television and in film. You know, we've been talking about Uh, With Linda Powell, we talked a little bit about advertiser-supported content and whether that could be something that's coming back. Um, I think that the reason that organized labor is so important is that, um, you know, it can't always be the easiest solution for these studios to just pay workers less and expect more from them. And it seems like that's been the calculation 
for, you know, making the balance sheets turn out right and reporting good numbers to their shareholders. Um, I appreciate how much the cost and the human cost is associated with bringing these films to life. But, you know, part of this reckoning that we're facing now, I think, in entertainment is we probably can't have it all, right? We probably can't have as many of these huge spectacular films coming out as frequently as they are we probably can't have you know dozens of streaming channels with all of the content in the world and so much tv that post show recaps can't even keep up with it that like poor grace leader and jess sterling are like you know staying up all night binging you know we can't like maybe we can't have everything but maybe that's okay if people can make a living for sure. And it's tricky because, right, like I pointed to Ant-Man because it was kind of lambasted for its effects, right? Mm-hmm. And you can kind of, when you put it in that light that you like that you just did, it's pretty easy to see why those, it has diminishing returns on these effects, right? Because it's not just Marvel that has increased its its output over the last few years. It's, it's everyone, right? And like these kind of big special effects driven films are are huge still and all over the place. And, you know, if the effects are coming out into theaters, not at like a certain level, it's not because people are like, ah, I'll slack today and get this done. Yeah, sure, whatever, let's kick out this. Everybody, you know, these are skilled craftspeople and they they want their work to be great. And I firmly believe that like nobody goes into any project uh, in film or TV thinking like, I'm going to make something bad today. You know, like everybody wants to make a great product. Everyone wants to make, you know, like uh, art essentially, right? Like everybody wants to to make something great and be associated with something that they're really proud of. So when I see a a film that like kind of goes like, oh, the effects are not so great. That kind of makes me think like, okay, this was probably, you know, probably didn't get the time that they needed. They probably, you know, cut some corners somewhere along the line that is not about the the works personship but Mm -hmm. about the like the time allocated and the money allocated and all that stuff adds up to to what you see as the final product so you're right maybe there's a a solution of like yeah let's maybe it's fewer projects with more time allocated to those projects Mm -hmm. but again we're in this model of like more is more more, you know and and we're trying to get so many of these things you know and marvel as an example has recently kind of backtracked on how much output they're doing because it's starting to show a little bit just in terms of the technical side of things that like yeah maybe maybe this is is having an effect on the quality in terms of the technical side and that's just time and money and like how much time or money you have to devote to something will reflect the end product. Um, Before we end our conversation today, Bram, I really wanted to hear, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about with writers, with the, with, with actors and performers. And I know that it's also relevant to your industry as well is the role of artificial intelligence and, um, you know, and what that impact that is having on the industry, obviously in, animation and VFX. I know that there are tools that have been, you know, used and applied to those industries that use some of these techniques. Um, do 
you feel like artificial intelligence is potentially a threat to the value of the work that's done in animation and VFX. For sure. Um, I do. Uh, I think, you know, based on what we're talking about here, that like, if there is a way to utilize AI in a way that brings down some cost, I think that will be explored, you know, by, by anyone who is capable of exploring it. Um, where I think that can get tricky is like, yeah, it might be really tempting to say like, oh, well, how much can we get this machine to do for free versus how much we can get a person to do? And maybe it becomes something like, you know, for, for right now, um, something that like an example of AI that we can see, I'm pretty sure this is the case. Again, not an animator, but, mm. uh, you know, speaking of Spider-Verse, that like really awesome look that they have where there's a 3D model character and then there's some lines that make it, that add like that comic book 2D stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think there's, there are animators painting every line, you know, on every frame. I think there's some program that like there's an animator that will do the line work and then, you know, the the computer can take it from like one area to the next. Um, let's say like there's an eyebrow raise and that eyebrow is is a line, right? There's an animator that can attach that line to the 3D sculpt, right? Mm -hmm. And then the computer will move that line and then the animator will refine it, right? Um, so that's kind of an example of AI, right? Right. Taking some time away from from what it would take to paint every frame, you know? So I can see that being explored in greater, greater ways to the point where we go, okay, well, maybe like how much of this can be animated using AI versus a person, you know? Yeah. And if, we, if, if the idea is like, how much time can we save or how much money can we save? I could see a big exploration into like, okay, well, what can AI do for me in terms of bringing that cost down without bringing the output down. Right. You know, I don't know if that, if I'm explaining or if I'm just rambling. No, you I absolutely definitely see it as a concern. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, I think like the dystopian future that we like have talked about, you know, is, you know, I go to, to chat GPT and I say like, right, you know, seasoned two of severance and it like spits out 10 episodes and then i say like you know animate it now right yeah and it, it, i don't think it would ever get to that stage but like right. i could i could see a, a dystopian world in mm. which you know it says like okay well storyboard this for me mm -hmm. right and then like bringing it to my to my like back to my to my uh area a little bit that like someone could say like, okay, here's the script, let's feed it into a storyboard uh, AI and then see what spits out. Right. And then the director of the of the show or the movie can be like, I like this, I like this, I like this, change this, change this. And then my job as the story artist becomes less about creating the ideas and more about like quickly changing an AI's, you know, perception of what should happen right. from the script, which is a very different job. You know, um, but again, extrapolating into dystopian world, I could imagine that like that would require fewer story artists. If that, if you're able to like spit out some rough draft, you know, similar to what you've talked about with writers on your right. show, like 
if if there's a world in which AI can like spit out a rough draft or something and the writer's job is to now make it into something that humans can you can you know enjoy that yeah. would change the amount of time that and and you know required but is it something that we want to watch exactly. you know that's like yeah we want I mean, I, and I think that one of the risks is like that, you know, it won't even necessarily save time and effort on the part of anybody to edit an AI generated product into something that is, you know, going to be viable artistically or from, you know, a production standpoint or, you know, that, that everybody's going to start like for a million reasons, I think you need human eyes on something, at least because somebody needs to be in meetings, finding out who are the stakeholders, what do they care about, um, all of these things. I think that one of the immediate concerns, though, is that it will allow, um, it could t- potentially allow employers to downgrade that role from somebody who is considered an artist to something that's like an editor or an assistant or something that's a lower mm-hmm. level um, and that, that gets, you know, compensated less and has less autonomy. Um, I think that those are some of the immediate concerns. Um, I recently saw, this was like a few months ago, and this is more in the domain of illustration than animation, but there was some like BuzzFeed, um, some BuzzFeed clickbait thing that was like, this is Barbie from every country. And it was clearly AI generated. And some of the Barbies like had extra hands and like some of the Barbies, like, for example, I think that like the, the Ukrainian Barbie was in front of like Russian landmarks, which is like a particularly poor taste. So it's like, they clearly generated a lot of this stuff. And if anybody, if an intern went through it, they didn't go through it closely enough. And then they, you know, they publish this and they get this content. And I think it's, you know, there's a sloppy version of applying these tools um and having like an intern level person who vets them that I can see you know being one of the potentially attractive things for employers to explore for sure and you could see a world in which it becomes a lot cheaper and easier to have one employee fixing the amount of fingers on Barbie's hand than it is to have someone draw a whole different Barbie you know um so that's the fear that I have personally, that like it becomes, you know, in the, again, in the realm of how can we save money and keep our profit, you know, how do we spend, instead of spending a hundred million dollars on this movie, that'll make 500, can we spend 90, you know, Mm -hmm. and then maybe spending 90 entails like, okay, what if an AI replaces one or two of our, of our workers on every, every level, you know, that's something like kind of immediate if we don't kind of address and regulate this kind of stuff, you know, I could see that becoming a pretty easy go-to to to keep the status quo in terms of how things are released and how things are viewed by the audience while kind of lowering the workforce little by little, you know, Um, I should say too, like in the animation world, we have seen parallels to this in some way or changes, right? Like, you know, 30 years ago, there was a lot of 2D animated films, right? And now most things are like CG, like three that 3D look, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a big upheaval in the animation world that there are so many people that were skilled in 2D that all of a sudden had to, you know, if they wanted to keep working in animated films, those films weren't being made anymore. 
and now they had to change their skill set to include animating in 3D or using the, the computer in a way that they hadn't been used to back when it was like paper and pencil was mm -hmm. your primary source of animating. Um, so there's an optimistic view that like AI is another one of these upheavals and we're going to have to learn to figure out how to work with that, you know, and implement that in a way that doesn't destroy our workforce. Like 3D animation didn't destroy the workforce. It really just changed, yeah. you know, the way animation is being made. AI has the potential to do something like that. But, you know, the concern is that AI can crank out a lot of stuff basically for free, whereas that was not, you know, computers were never, contrary to some popular belief, computers were never animating things for animators. Mm -hmm. You know, animators are just using a different, you know, painting with a different brush, as it were. Um, so how AI becomes utilized, the optimistic side is like, it will be utilized in some way. And like, how can we work with it to maybe, maybe there's more content mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean the workforce is diminished. Maybe it just means there's more stuff for us to watch, but who knows, you know, it's, it's like, I, I feel like I'm talking around in circles a little bit with this, but it's. It's such a question that yeah, you know, we're at that moment in time where the this is emerging and it's developing so quickly. And as a society and as individual industries, we're just grappling with how to incorporate it. Um, this is one of the reasons I think that what the WGA and SAG after are doing is so important because in a lot of ways they're setting this groundwork and developing these templates for how other industries can start to confront. These, um, these questions, you know, I've talked about it with a number of my guests about how this isn't only going to affect creators, this is going to start affecting all of us who have a digital footprint, who create, who generate any type of, um, of, of text or any, any type of work. I mean, the whole question of authorship and ownership is really, uh, you know, blowing wide open with this. Um, but, you know, as we've seen, which is great news. Um, collective action is contagious. And, you know, we're having this great moment right now in Hollywood um, where workers are seizing their power, these early signs of unionization in the VFX industry. So um, I'm hoping that this will only mean more collective action in your industry as well, Bram. And thank you so, so much for coming and talking to us today. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope I didn't ramble so much that things didn't make sense. I, I, you know, I know there's a lot going on here, to, so I'm trying to distill as much as I can. But I, 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 really I learned appreciate you having me. I learned so so much. Um, is there anything that you would like our listeners to follow or keep up with? Any places you want to direct us to keep up with you or to keep up with anything else that's going on? Oh gosh, I am pretty you know notoriously not great at the social media i really should be but you know um i would say if you are listening to this podcast and you're not a, a social recaps patron oh then you should be because i'm on the discord so yeah. like come chat with me directly on there if you know i'd be happy to like chat further about this kind of stuff if anyone has more questions for me i'm i'm active enough on there and um, come hang out.
Um, that was a fantastic plug. And you can become a patron of Post Show Recaps by going to postshowrecaps.com slash patron. And um, then you can join myself. You can join Bram in the Discord. Uh, you can have uh, continue these conversations. Um, wonderful. Thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you.